Good morning. Hope y'all are doing well. I have a little audio boost because my voice is not the strongest. Do you want me to use this or not? Is this helpful? Yeah. Have a little, okay. Just, uh, we can adjust the volume. So, uh, welcome to Bible Moderators for the month of November. Hard to believe this year is marching on. And we're marching on in our study of the book of Haggai, the prophet to the post-exilic community who is returned to Jerusalem from Babylon. Let's look at our theme verse. It's from the book of Malachi, chapter 4, verse 2. Let's read our theme verse, or you can recite it if you would like, from Malachi 4, 2. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Kai 4.2. Excellent. And we find that truth based here in Malachi is something that will come to bear in our study of the book of Haggai. Last month we looked at Haggai. Uh, We looked at Haggai is comprised of four sermons. We looked at two last week, and we're going to look at two this month. Rather rather last month than this month. The first two sermons, the first you may remember was a call for the people of God to readjust their priorities. Their priorities were skewed. They were focused on themselves and their own self-interest rather than on the Lord and what they were called to do in building the temple, advancing his reign, his rule, his kingdom. You may remember that. You know, we talked about how that you've neglected the temple while you live in paneled houses. That was his first sermon. And the second sermon came as they began, they, they responded They put their hand, as it were, to the plow, and they began the work. (coughs) And but there were some who remembered the previous temple and the glory and greatness of that temple compared to what the effort in their eyes was small and meager. And the prophet Haggai reminded them this temple being constructed is of a greater glory. He put this temple in redemptive history in the context of God's plan of salvation. That the Messiah, the promised deliverer, would come to this temple in the great day of the Lord. (coughs) And so this temple was one of great significance. Today, We're going to look at the third and fourth sermons. And they were both preached a few months later on what would be September 24th, the ninth ninth month of 520 B.C. In the third sermon, the first sermon of that day, Haggai calls them, to look back to the past and consider their previous ways from the past. You know, there's great value in looking back, taking stock, considering who or what we were before we knew the Lord, or being honest about some of the sinful patterns and habits that we can fall prey to. Um, you know, we often can excuse our sin. sin. We'll get into that more uh, in, a, in a moment or two. Um, but he calls them to look to the past. In the second sermon, and see, looking to the past affects how we live today. That we might live faithfully for him today, knowing the kind of sins we've done in the past that we wouldn't fall back into those 
sin habits and sinful thoughts and ways that once characterized us. The second sermon looks to the future. It's a glance down the road at the great kingdom that will not be shaken. The rule and reign of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, our Savior, Jesus Christ. The design of looking down the future is to also shape the present. That they would realize that what they're doing, what they're part of, is very significant. You know, when you're putting one brick in front of another, it may not seem that important. It get pretty dull. It could be difficult work. We read in other books where there was opposition to their work of rebuilding. So the prophet, the Lord God wants to remind them the significance of what they're doing and how that it stands pointing ultimately to our Savior, Jesus Christ. So on the top of your notes, I put this little signpost because really this passage deals with the past and the future and how those things drive our present faithfulness to the Lord. So I I kind of, I'm staying with uh, uh, Mr. Barrett's outline, but this is a simple way of looking at it. If you want to look at it in terms of past, future, and how that shapes the present. Let's, let me read the first sermon, and then we can discuss it. In the first sermon, it's actually his third sermon. The first one we're looking at today is from Haggai chapter 2, starting at verse 10 um, through verse 19. The word of our God. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priest about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so is it with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer, there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day forward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare when one came to a heap of 20 measures? There were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there was but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider... Is the seed yet in your barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. Let's talk about this first sermon. We, we talked about the personality of Haggai last month. How he's a very direct and blunt preacher. Now, There is value in directness and bluntness in love, of course. And this prophet is speaking out of a great love, 
a love for the Lord, a love for the Lord's people. But he knows the danger of sin, the the destructive consequences of sin. And he wants to drive home to the people that they continue steadfast. For them to remain steadfast, they need to take a look back and carefully consider what their lives were like when they disobeyed the Lord and how that the Lord did not bless them in their sin. So on our outline, we're looking at, and this is very simple. This is the way Mr. Barrett did it, Michael Barrett. I like it. Sin is bad. I mean, you know, Haggai was one who didn't mince words. And I think that's a good summary of this, this part of his message, his sermon. Uh, sin indeed is bad. You know, at, at the end of his sermon, he'll talk about a benediction of blessing. He, he concludes, from, but from this day on, I will bless you. But that's not where he starts. <laughs> he begins with the reality of sin and the contagious nature of sin. When I was young, I remember in the school system when someone had pink eye, or if they had little critters in the, on, on their on their hair, the, the, they took that very very seriously because those things are very very contagious, and so was uncleanness, spiritual impurity. It's something that is is very destructive in our relationship with the Lord. And like any loving parent, (coughs) Haggai (coughs) confronts them, reminding them of their previous sin, not to browbeat them, not to put their face in it, but instead that they may reassess and remember the danger of it and that they may remain faithful and true to the Lord and to the Lord's calling on their own lives that they might continue in their resolve the good resolve they made to serve the Lord to live for him and for his glory and how much we need this reminder we need to know that sin is bad we need to hear that that it's bad that it's bad for us it's worth evaluating our own lives, in particular patterns or habits of sin, things that perhaps we might be more vulnerable to. Um, we need this history lesson that we might know the real danger of sin, that we might live for the Lord, for His praise, and for His glory. Sin is infectious, and He gives this example of meat, the meat can become unclean if it's exposed to a corpse. But the meat in and of itself doesn't have power to bring cleansing to that which is unclean. This whole Old Testament system of worship involved sacrifice. The whole sacrificial system is because we are unclean by nature. We're polluted by sin. It's affected us, our first parents. It affected their relationship with God. It affects our relationship with God. We're now there's that natural separation because God is so holy and pure and righteous, and we are not. And He can't be around that which is unclean. But the whole sacrificial system with the shedding of blood that we find in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, and the very temple that they're reconstructing, restoring, and building was to deal with the reality of sin. 
it ultimately points to Jesus Christ um, in his once for all perfect sacrifice for his people. Uh, the whole sacrificial system finds its fulfillment, its completion. It, it leads to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Yes. Temple they are constructing. That was really good. Okay, well, it was a, this is kind of on the fly, so <laughs> it is being recorded. Um, oh, <coughs> because you said something about because of the infectious nature of sin and that God, and, and okay, it's, it's, it's percolating, it's just not coming out right, which is why that sentence was. I'll go find that sentence in the other. There you go. Okay, thank yeah, you. not a problem. No, no, you're fine. You know, in the New Testament talks about the um, infectious impact of sin. I think Michael Barrett mentions this passage that I've included in the notes from 1 Corinthians 6. You women who are bakers know the impact of, is it leaven? Am I pronouncing it correctly? Yeast. It has a pervasive impact. When yeast is put in, the whole batch of flour is affected. And same with sin. When sin is introduced, it is, it is destructive. It's pervasive in its effects. Just as sin has affected us in every arena of our lives, our minds, our bodies, our souls, uh, so, our, our, our decision-making, so many arenas of our life. So, sin, <clears throat> so is yeast impacting the flour dough. So, here, Haggai just drives home. He wants them to know the danger of sin, the danger of returning to their previous life. But he doesn't end there. While he's a blunt, direct preacher, he, his heart is for the people. He wants them to be blessed. He wants them to experience the blessings that God himself brings. And this pronouncement at the end of his sermon is very striking. But from this day on, I will... Bless you. He announced this when their fields were barren, when their pockets still had holes. All of the things that he explained in his first sermon, uh, the results of their sin had consequences in their lives. They were under God's covenant curses. You know, the Lord loves us, but he disciplines us because he cares for us. And sometimes he, he uses circumstances in our lives. And he was using the difficult economic circumstances that they were facing, that they would soften their hearts and return to him. But they had made a resolve to return. And the Lord is affirming his blessing upon them. When we think of God's blessing, many may think of the things that God gives. He does express his, his blessing upon us and oftentimes providing for us in marvelous ways. It's so easy to become focused upon the gifts blessings that he showers upon us that we miss what the true blessing is and that's the giver that's our relationship with the Lord and that's what Haggai's after he's after the heart of the people to be inclined towards God as they rebuild the temple their lives were in shambles their lives needed spiritual rebuilding and that's what his concern is and that is what this promise of blessing 
certainly was to have material expression of God's provision for them. But most of all, it was to lead them to the Lord in a vital and living relationship, a friendship with him. After all, they've been made in his image. They were called by his name. And there's relevance for our lives, that there's true satisfaction and joy that's found ultimately in him. The things of this world, even the things that he gives us, are passing away. This world does not last. But the joy of having communion and fellowship and union with our God through our Savior Jesus is of deep satisfaction and it wells up for all eternity. It's okay. It is. It's the conclusion. But you got the right idea. Yet I will trust in the Lord. I will rejoice, sir. Yeah, in the God of my salvation. Exactly. And that's that's the design. That's that's what he's saying here. In the midst of the shambles of their lives, because of sin, God is going to come to them and bless them in their relationship with Him. Why don't we just pause here? We finished this first sermon and y'all's thoughts, comments. I thought about the verse, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. You know, and nobody wants to hear that. And we all think we're stronger than to have that happen to us. And I've actually had somebody say about this passage about the carrying the meat and the poles of the road something like well it le- you know if you brush up against something dirty it at least leaves it a little cleaner and I think who thinks that I mean you know no if you're wearing white jeans and you get next to your filthy car you're done for the day you know and the car is still filthy so um, you know it's it's really interesting that that he uses the example that you cannot say my being close to something sinful helps. It doesn't, you know. I mean, at least I think that's what he's saying, you know. But, you know, be careful. I mean, he's always saying, be careful. Yes. You know, be careful of her. Absolutely. Be careful little ears what you hear. Yes. I remember as a teenager reading Irving Stone's The Agony and the Ecstasy, and there was a quote that I have remembered to this day, and that is, walk with a cripple long enough and soon you will limp. Wow. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Can you repeat that? Walk with a cripple long enough and soon you will limp. Hmm. Okay. So, I, you know, this first sermon is relevant not just for the post-exilic community, but it's something we need to hear, isn't it? It's something I think the ladies in your circle need to hear here. And you can be obviously loving and kind, appropriately direct, but I think the word will speak for itself in the lives of the ladies in your circle. Um, But I don't think we want to shy away because it's for our good. It's a warning passage. Those warning passages are there for a reason. We need to be warned. We need to be reminded. You know, we can have um, amnesia about the past and think, well, you know, you know, it wasn't that bad. Sin isn't that bad. You know, um, <clears throat> you know, other people. We can think, well, I'm not as bad as this person <laughs> or whatever. And uh, we play, can play with it. We can nurse it. <coughs> and it's like that pretty green snake you put in your pocket. It's going to bite you. <laughs> so. How true. 
any uh, any other thoughts on this first sermon? Well, well, let's press on and look at the second uh, sermon or the the last sermon, the fourth sermon in the whole in the entirety of the book. And here, it's a glance to the future. He called them a respective look to the past. But now he wants them to look forward. He wants them to see what they're doing in light of eternity. Which is always a good thing to do, isn't it? It's something for us to think about. What am I doing in light of the reality of eternity? How does eternity affect the way in which I live today? So let's look at it together from Haggai chapter 2, starting at verse 20 through the end of the book in verse 23. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Sheatiel, declares the Lord, and make you a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. My verse 23 has a little footnote, and make you like the signet ring at the bottom of my ESV Bible. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. In this final sermon, much like the second sermon uh, that's found at the second half of chapter 1, Haggai is pointing the people to the future, to the future of God's triumphant and glorious kingdom. Let's pause for a moment here. Here they are back in the land. The kingdom, the Davidic kingdom has come to an end. There's not even a divided kingdom. There's no kingdom. They're they're servants of another nation. And uh, it was not the day of great promise and blessing. As you look on the on the landscape, the current circumstances, and do a survey and take things in. It was at best a day of small things. But the Lord wants them to know that his work is not finished. That all things are working towards the culmination of the great day of the Lord. That day where the Redeemer, the Savior, the Messiah will return in triumph and in power. Where that Messianic kingdom will be fully inaugurated and God will rule and reign. And the nations of the earth, those who are opposed to him, will be cast down like chariots and horses that are, that are turned upside down. It's quite a passage. So let, let's look at the two aspects as Michael Barrett looks at it. First is the divine conquest, and that's what I was beginning to, to explain a little bit of how that God was at work Advancing his kingdom, and I'm quoting on page 93, step by step, the culmination of God's unfailing redemptive plan. Here we're introduced again to 
the civil leader Zerubbabel, who was charged with the work of temple reconstruction. But Haggai declares and declares to this civil leader, did you notice, uh, speak to Zerubbabel. So this message has a specific application to this civil leader. And that application is that God is coming and he's going to shake the heavens and the earth. And the nations that are opposed to him will be put down. We saw glimpses of this when we studied the book of Revelation. We saw glimpses of this also several years ago when we studied the book of Daniel. But it's the theme throughout much of the scripture. Even the Lord Jesus speaks of similar type of things when he speaks of the things that are coming. But what we can know is that Christ is triumphant. That his kingdom will prevail. That the kingdoms of this world will come to an end. All of them that boast in their might, in their power, will be brought down. And, you know, we are to take great encouragement great heart and cheer knowing that Christ is triumphant because we will rule and reign with him forever. We are triumphant in him because we're united to him by faith. And so this is really a celebration for us of of triumph that we share not because of our own efforts we're those that should be tossed upside down. But by his grace, we've been brought in. You know, he's called us by name. He's given us a new name and called us to himself. And so we can rejoice. And, you know, when you know you're on the winning side, maybe it doesn't seem like you're winning today, but when you know you're on the winning side, you put, it puts a little spring in your step. You know, even if you're not feeling well, even if you can't talk very well, it, it just help, helps you to know that, hey, I'm on the side that is right and true and will triumph. And it'll help them to lay those stones in a better, more vigorous way. And it helps us in the service to which Jesus has called each one of us. Because, you know, he is still building his church and advancing his kingdom. And he's chosen to use his people. And though you may be, like me, an earthen vessel, weak and faulty, you know, he's given us the very message of life in jars of clay. And he's called us, he's given us gifts that we might serve him and help others in his name. But a day is coming where the heavens and the earth will shake. All who oppose to him will be put down fully, finally, and eternally. So, you know, all those that plot and scheme against God and his kingdom are doomed. They're doomed to destruction. Their destiny is failure. And we live in a day where there are many boasting and they're unfortunately in their own pride against the Lord and against his word, against his truth. And we can take real comfort, real heart in knowing that God has the final word. And that word is that his kingdom will triumph. So there is this aspect of divine conquest in this second sermon. And then the second part is that of divine certitude. We can be certain that God will fulfill his promises. Michael Barrett brings this out two times. The expression, the Lord of hosts is used. 
this expression want at the beginning of verse 23 and then at the end of verse 23. The Lord of hosts is that expression that's used to describe God as a mighty warrior of his people and of, his, of the angelic host of heaven. It is quite a promise here of his power, of his might, and of his kingdom that he will see this through. And what is it that he's determined to do? He says, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Sheatiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Zerubbabel was, as, as we read, the civil leader who had responsibility, as I mentioned earlier, in the renovation project, the restoration of the temple. He was of the Davidic line, but he was not of royalty. And yet he stood for something. And Michael Barrett spends a fair amount of time, and we're going to talk about this, hopefully not over-talk about it, but talk about it for a couple minutes, how that Zerubbabel is a type. He gives us a definition of what, what exactly is he talking about here how do we go about reading the Old Testament when there are those that are types? He describes it this way on page sorry, page 98. He defines a type as a real historic person, event, or thing used as an object lesson or symbol to foreshadow or predict the actual future realization of fulfillment of the pictured truth. It's a mouthful, I know. But a type is something that points. It points beyond itself to our Savior Jesus. If you go up I-126, you'll see a sign that says I-20 East Florence. (laughs) Okay? That's a sign. It's, it's pointing to something beyond itself. It's pointing to the direction of the city of Florence. Well, here, the, these types are individuals like Zerubbabel, and we'll talk about him in a moment, or they are events. Think of the, the Passover event. It is a type that points to the great work of our high priest, or even a place. Genesis 22, Abraham's sacrifice, preparing to sacrifice his son at Mount Moriah. That this is a place that's spoken of later in the Bible. The city of Jerusalem itself is seen as a place that is spoken of later. We've already talked about the temple. So these are types in the, in the Old Testament, uh, they're seen as perhaps a bit shadowy from Colossians chapter 3. They don't give us a full picture, but they give us an inkling. They give us an understanding. They point to something that is to be fulfilled. Fulfilled in the person and through the work of our Savior, Jesus Christ. What's significant about understanding a type is what it looks to, or rather to whom it looks in the anti-type, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so one of the ways in which we're to interpret types, according to Michael Barrett, and I think it's very helpful, is we must keep the one who is the fulfillment of the type, the anti-type in view. And he has this marvelous quote at the end, page 99. 
some of this is my wording and then some of it is his. The more we know Jesus and his great work and perfect character, the more readily we will be able to see the shadowy form and picture prophecies in the Old Testament. Then he says this on 99, a little bit later down. We should always read the scripture being on Christ alert. That's a great phrase. I've never heard of that. I've never thought of it. But what a great expression as we read the Bible, both Old Testament and New, especially the Old Testament that speaks of these types to be on Christ alert. So with that in mind, what 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 is this point to about the Lord Jesus? This final section of his fourth sermon here in Haggai chapter 2. Well, it points to Zerubbabel as a signet. You know, a signet was a, a stamp of a seal of authority. It carried with it the power, the resources, the, na- the name of the kingdom for which the royal, for the royalty inscribed on the seal represented carries their authority authority. in the book of daniel we read that there was a signet a signet ring a ring that had a seal that would would be used Uh, here it doesn't say the word ring it may have been a ring it could have been another form you know some of you are notaries you know you have a some type of a, a embossed stamp i'll say that shows certain amount of authority of that notary that's put on legal and important papers. So that's the idea of this signet here. Uh, and here, the references to Zerubbabel and to the coming of the day of the Lord. So Zerubbabel stands for not only, think about what Zerubbabel was doing, doing he was leading the people in the work to which god called them to of building the temple they were doing i'll say kingdom work the work that god had commissioned and called them to do and the one who is greater than zerubbabel our savior jesus christ is he not the one who also engages us in temple work in kingdom work of expanding his word and gospel Um, think about your friends who may not know Christ or a neighbor who's a young Christian or a family member that is is struggling. You know the countless number of people and and ladies as as well that you have ministry to and the ladies in your circle care for and love and are raised up by God to do kingdom work. Zerubbabel, so the Lord Jesus, Zerubbabel is somewhat Jesus-like. And Jesus is fulfilling what Zerubbabel represented and bringing the people to advance the kingdom and do the work of the Lord. And while Zerubbabel was not a royal, he wasn't a king. Um, He's described as the governor in this passage. Um, he was a civil servant who faithfully worked and served. This idea of the signet carries with it the royal image of authority and power. And it speaks ultimately of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Make you like the signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. And speaking of our Savior Jesus, precious and chosen in the sight of the Lord, despised, rejected by men, but chosen by the Lord to do his work of redemption and full and final redemption in the consummation of the kingdom. You know, we saw in the book of Revelation how that the kingdom was given to our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Satan tried to come and, and, 
and wrestle that kingdom from him, as it were, but that he was triumphant and victorious. This, indeed, is great news. It's a great blessing. Haggai wants the people to know that the best is yet to come. And how true that is for us. We've received blessings upon blessings. When you visit a third world, you begin to take in how materially blessed we are. But it's so much more than material blessings. It's every blessing that is in Jesus Christ. As Paul says, every spiritual blessing of the heavenlies is now ours. But even for us, the best is yet to come. There will be a day where our minds are not affected by the fall or sin, where our bodies will be gloriously transformed and our souls will be purged and renewed, will be perfect like Jesus. We will see him and be like him, not in, not in our power, but in our character, because we've been changed by him. So we too have a great destiny. So I would encourage you to lay this out to your women uh, and to see the long term, to see the end result where history is heading. You know, we can oftentimes forget that. Students of history, we get very much involved in current affairs. Nothing's wrong with that. But we need that long-term divine perspective that Christ is triumphant. The kingdoms will wax and wane, but you know Jesus' kingdom will remain. I'll just pause here. and We have a few minutes if, if there are any comments or questions. standpoint of having an eternal perspective and being able to see everything on hmm. earth in yes. light of that perspective. Yeah. Because you normally say keep looking up, but <laughs> right. say keep looking down. Yeah. Hmm. David, um, as, the, as the Israelites were, or the Jews were going into exile, um, I think it was Jehoiachin that was hmm. the king. Yes. And there, there's a, 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 one of the prophets said to him that God told him, if, even if this, your, your signet is on my right hand, I'll tear it off. And, and, and then he went into exile. And in, he was in prison for like 37 years. And then the very end of Kings says that he was out of prison. And then Drubbable was... Zerubbabel was his grandson, and so I think that the the that encouragement, you know, Zerubbabel, even though he was from the kingly line, he was not on the throne. You know, he only had the power that Darius gave him. But um, Haggai is telling him, you know, there is going to be a king. Right. That's excellent. Yeah. And Michael Barrett brings a little bit of some of that out about Joel Yakim yeah. in the chapter. That's good. It's helpful. <clears throat> Anything else anyone has? Well, this strikes me as this is just the authority of God. Just all over this is, is the authority of God, and he gives it to whom he pleases. And he raises up whom he will raise up, and he will tear down whom he will tear down. And when he gives Zerubbabel this authority, this, you will be my signet, you know, that's, you will have my authority to get this done. And, and, and the whole, the whole, you know, I've had an interesting year, as you know, and, you know, thinking about all of this, about how everything that we have can be taken from us in a moment. And it's not about what we have. It's about who we have and whose we are. And this, you know, as I've been reading through all of this, it has really transformed my thinking 
Um, and it, it's been it's been real helpful for me personally in, in this process that I'm going through to realize that any it's, it's not about stuff uh, and stuff includes people and everything you know like Job everything that he gives us may be for a season may, but but he is forever he is uh, well that's the, the great blessing and I think that's what um, that's what I think Barrett is saying is that you know uh, worship God and enjoy him forever and you were talking about involvement in the world and you know the things we're involved with I don't know about y'all but I woke up this morning and read that about in Ohio they passed the and don't repeat this because I didn't read the whole thing something in line with abortions legalizing abortions yeah. even as part of the state Constitution or something? something yeah, something. And I just went, oh, brother, but you know, we don't need to get discouraged. We know the Lord's on the throne and He's working and He's running. Yeah. And all those things. So we have to trust that He will set all things right. Well, let's give Him our thanks. Mm-hmm. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we rejoice that You are King, that You are triumphant in your mercy and love we share with you the victory of our Savior. Our hearts rejoice as we consider this passage of your pronouncement of blessing upon your people as a lay sin aside. Side, help us to do that continually as we battle the world, the flesh, and the devil. Help us to wholeheartedly love you and follow after you. Encourage us with your the prospect of your continual working among us, even in ways we cannot see, see and accomplishing your good purposes and bringing about the fulfillment of your promise. We thank you for our Savior. We thank you that you are our satisfaction, our portion, and our joy. We give you our thanks. and I commit these ladies to you in the various circles as they meet next week that they may be encouraged and refreshed from your word, that we might be energized to, to serve you and to serve you well. We give you our thanks in Christ, our mighty Redeemer's name we pray. pray. Amen.